0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM.
1: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School.
0: This is Launchpad on Business Radio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Launchpad here on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm Rob Connivere, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, a leading venture capital firm where we focus on investing in early stage companies. So my guest for today's show, joining me via Zoom, is Carl Sebrick. He's the co-founder and CEO at Flex. Flex is a Seattle logistics startup. It operates as an on-demand warehouse marketplace. And prior to co-founding Flex, Carl has a pretty interesting history, Uh, started out Diving for the Navy, he was CEO of AdReady, a Seattle-based advertising technology company. Senior executive at AQuantive, a company that was acquired by Microsoft in two thousand and seven for over six billion dollars, and also had a tenure at leading international consulting firm Bain and Company. Carl, thanks for joining us today.
1: My pleasure. It's uh, good to be here, Rob.
0: Yeah. So. I'd like to start out by better understanding, with what you can share anyways, about what it was like in special operations as a diving officer for the U.S. Navy. Because my my impression of diving, and especially if you're doing it for the military, means that you're actually used to enduring pain and fear for long periods of time. And I I would love to hear what it's like to be a diving officer.
1: Sure, happy to share. So the quick background is um, I had a ROTC scholarship uh, that paid my way through undergrad at Duke. And uh, it was a fantastic um, mechanism to allow me to, to go get a great education. Um, I'd grown up in Texas and kind of wanted it to uh, go see the world a little bit. And uh, a lot of great universities in Texas, um, but kind of had a desire to to break out a little bit and uh, this afforded me the opportunity to go to Duke and uh, uh, what that turns out that means is they pay for college and then you owe uh, them x number of years at the time it was four years of service to repay that uh, and so throughout school, you learn uh, on top of whatever it is you're studying. I studied economics and Russian. Um, You learn, you take naval science courses and learn a little bit about what it means to be in the Navy, to be a military officer. And then when you graduate, you get a commission as an officer. uh, And you have to figure out which branch of the Navy, in this case, you want to serve in. You could be on a surface ship, you could be on a submarine, you could join the Marine Corps. I was very compelled by the idea of uh, joining the Uh, diving uh, community there it's a very small community Um, and uh, it just looked like a lot of fun looked like a big had you
0: already been a diver had you spent time underwater before
1: never had never had Um, it just uh, it was kind of this small sort of elite thing you know you had to compete to get in which I was drawn to Uh, and then you know they have a lot of great toys you know fast boats and diving equipment. It just seemed like an adventurous uh, uh, way to, to serve uh, and, um, and a challenge. So applied, uh, got accepted, and then was on the journey. So what, what it meant in practice after a lot of training, number of months of training in, in, in the U.S. Navy Diving School, which is in Florida, uh, was uh, I, I served on a ship that was a rescue, a submarine rescue ship. So in the event that a submarine would burn into trouble, Yeah, and,
0: and, and before that, I'm just curious, when you talk about U.S. Navy Diving School, what does that mean?
1: Yeah, it's pretty intense. You know, it's sort of built um, to uh, test people. Um, some of it's academic. You know, it turns out you need to understand physics pretty well uh, to uh, help lead and, and uh, drive safety related to diving. Um, and uh, but it's also can be physically challenging to uh, spend a lot of time underwater, particularly if the water's is cold uh, and, uh, you know, it can be stressful. So sort of the whole dive school uh, process was a way to to both teach people, but also kind of make sure that that people were well suited. Uh, what the- does it
0: look like when you show up at dive school? So did you drive in and park in a parking lot or did you get a ride there or like? What is that first day <laughs> at dive school like?
1: Yeah. Do you is sit so in a
0: classroom fun. or do they just throw you straight into the proverbial deep end literally?
1: Yeah. It's pretty much more the latter than the former, you know, the cl- classroom is part of it, but a big part of it is like, you know, this is a stressful, strenuous occupation. You know, do you have the mindset uh, to be able to manage through that successfully? Uh, and, You know, be a strong leader in that kind of environment, and so it was pretty intense. Yeah, yeah, you you drive up. We had uh uh come down from another navy school up in Newport, Rhode Island, which is all about learning how to drive ships. Um, and (laughs) and, uh, uh, you know, and then showed up in Florida, uh, yeah, and you you show up, and kind of the first day, uh, you're out for a run, which then turns into a swim, which then turns into you know, a lot of PT, as they call it, uh, in the Navy, in the military, a lot of PT and sand. Um, just okay, so of- PT is what, physical training?
0: you just, yeah, exactly. you're just, okay. Yeah. So a lot of sand, a lot of that. And were there any people in that class that just like, they didn't know how to swim to begin with? Or was it kind of discouraged going to yeah. dive school if you didn't know how to swim?
1: That, that is not only discouraged, but that's part of the test to get in you know, uh, you know, there's a physical test to get in, which is running and swimming and, and some, you know, other PT related things. And, and that was part of, you know, your application if, if, if you will. Uh, so you had to, and and that's also a pretty useful screen because you probably don't want to go to Navy dive school if you don't know how to swim or aren't comfortable in the water.
0: Yeah, well, it must have been quite an experience and obviously we're, Talking about startups and talking about tech businesses, so we'll move on. But I do have one final question here. When you were based in San Diego, what was probably the the most either terrifying or significant thing that happened to you while you were deployed as a diver?
1: Yeah, well, uh, you know, generally speaking, so I I did go on one, uh, it's called a Westpac uh, deployment, which uh, ended up being six or seven months where um, this was at uh, uh, kind of the tail end of the Gulf War. Um, and so we were deployed along with a lot of other uh, folks in the Navy to the, to the Middle East and uh, along the way went through uh, the Far East and a number of ports. And I would just say in general, you know, when you're a Navy diver and, and you have to dive uh, to do your work, which t- typically is, you know, underneath the ship, you know, inspecting, or going down, you know, in a harbor, going down to the bottom to pick up something that somebody dropped. And and that could be a helicopter, or it could be a sidearm. You know, generally speaking, you're not diving in places that look like the Caribbean. Uh, You're diving in the, you know, like Hong Kong Harbor, or, you know, not typically very. Yeah, clean, I got it.
0: You got perfect. lots of oil. You have lots of who knows what down there. It's kind of dark. It's definitely not like being in the Seychelles or somewhere great where That's you're. Exactly
1: right. So you kind of looking get used for to coral. That. Yeah, you kind of get used to that. You know, one of the one of the things that um, navy divers are particularly proud of is you know there's just a lot of grit. You know, in startup land, people use the word grit, and I would. Uh, I would just offer if you really want to understand grit, go talk to a Navy diver uh, who has is, who is, uh, done hard work in, you know, underwater in a really dirty port city, which is pretty much what you do. Uh, I have to say that really sounds like startups. You think it's pretty sexy
0: and exciting. It's like Navy SEAL stuff, but it's really, we'd like you to dive into this harbor because somebody drive, or dropped an assault rifle down there or a helicopter, one of those two things.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So a lot of similarities actually, and you kind of nailed it, like the, you know, what you read about sounds glamorous. Um, If you're in it, uh, what you recognize is it can be really challenging and and not every day is glamorous.
0: so if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Connevere, and you're listening to Launchpad on SiriusXM 132 Business Radio. I am on Zoom right now with Carl Siebrick, the co-founder and CEO at Flex. So you moved on from that. You went back to business school. You went to Dartmouth. So you had a really beautiful New England business school experience. And then you and I met a long time ago at Bain & Company. We were summer associates there. And then you actually stayed at Bain and had a real career. I I moved on and went to go invest, but you moved pretty quickly into an operating role. And I'm curious, how did you end up at Aquantif and, and running Atlas and the work you were doing there? Maybe talk about your transition, how on how you ended up in Seattle and at that company.
1: Yeah, happy to. So You're right. I, I, after business school, uh, started at Bain full time and was one of the first folks working in a brand new practice area at the time, which was their private equity practice area, um, which they didn't even have a name yet. They were just doing some work initially for Bain Capital, which was the sister company. It was the investment, uh, investment company populated by effectively all Bain partners, consulting partners. And it was just fascinating. It was kind of my first exposure to a startup. So here's the dynamic, you know, Bain Capital is physically in the same building across on the other wing from Bain Consulting. Uh, and all the folks in Bain Capital had formerly been Bain Consultants. So they go out and they're investing they their private equity, they're buying companies. And so they do their diligence and they use a lot of the, the quote unquote Bain Toolkit to figure out how to value companies, decide which to buy, how you would um, add some value uh, to, to, to make them more valuable, right? And they, if, if the deal flow gets hot, you need more arms and legs to help you out. So what do you do? You go across the hall and you hire a Bain Consulting case team who's already trained up on all the same toolkit, right? Makes sense. So after hiring a number of these Bain Consulting teams, some of the partners on the Bain Consulting side had this idea like, huh, I wonder if we could sell this service to other private equity firms. And lo and behold, the answer was yes. And oh, so
0: we could go sell to KKR and BlackRock and, and all these other people.
1: Exactly. Um, and it took off uh, in a huge way. And so I was, uh, my, the manager I'd worked for the summer was one of the first uh, to, to work on those things. And it just, it absolutely took off. It was the fastest growing part of the firm. You know, many years later, I think, you know, five years ago, I was at an alumni event in Seattle. And only then did I learn that the private equity practice was actually the largest practice area of the entire consulting firm uh, for uh, over a decade. Uh, it was just, wow. so anyway, uh, that was a little peek into sort of how, a, how a, a new startup can be born. It's sort of like the best way possible. There's a customer need. Uh, y- you understand what that is and see if there's a generalized opportunity to go build something around it. So anyway, After a few years of doing that, uh, a very close friend of mine who actually had gone to Duke with, uh, and he and I were uh, made the joint decision to um, go into Navy diving. He was also ROTC, and we uh, went on the diving uh, adventure together, a guy called Mike Galgan. After he got out of the Navy, he went to HBS uh, and moved back out to Seattle where he had been stationed with the Navy. On a minesweeper protecting the Puget Sound uh, from mines, uh, which is another job uh, that Navy divers can do. Uh, it's a whole other oh, story. Oh, wow.
0: I'm sure that's one of the ones you really relish. That's where you <laughs> kind of wish you were looking for helicopters or sidearms that fell in the water as opposed yeah, to something
1: yeah, exactly. that's designed to blow up. So, so Mike had, um, after business school, come out to Seattle and uh, through a little bit of chance um, ended up co founding a company called, at the time, Avenue A, which was one of the very first digital uh, ad tech or ad uh, agency businesses. Uh, This was in 1997. And pretty soon he started calling and saying, hey, you should come out and join me. This is amazing opportunity. I'm at Bain. uh, And after uh, a a year or so of badgering me, uh, convinced me to to make what ultimately ended up being a great decision and come out to Seattle and join Avenue A. so I came out in 1999. Uh, it was right after Avenue A had raised their Series B and uh, was immediately uh, anointed as their first head of product, uh, which I had never done specifically before, um, but it you know, aligned with a lot of the things that I had learned uh, in my consulting practice or c- consulting years, et cetera. So, uh, that was the beginning of a, what ended up being a 10-year adventure. It was amazing. Um, it, very, very... Uh, fast-growing startup and, and of course and, late- and you
0: must have had some ups and downs because you mentioned you raised the series B in 99 and that was when everything everybody was going to become worth hundreds of millions of dollars and then you must have gone through the crash after that as well
1: well that's exactly right and um, as fortune would have it you know the company went public about 12 days before the Nasdaq crashed uh, it was uh, leap day uh, in 2000 and the market crashed on March, you could look it up 13th or something like that. And so, you know, there, th- look, this was a, uh, a great idea uh, that, uh, happened at a time of very significant change and, and, and emerging market need kind of the category called internet or digital advertising was just getting formed. Um, a lot of smart people were involved in designing a business model that, that added a lot of value to customers. So there a lot of, um, Things were done very well. And we were just incredibly lucky uh, that we got yeah, this out- is back in the time when people were
0: basically starting to create the idea of programmatic buying and you could actually target advertising to very specific demographics or people, et cetera, and know how well it worked or didn't. That's you could exactly actually right. close the loop.
1: That's exactly right. In fact, Avenue A, you know, I think there's still some debate out there, but the uh, conversion tag or action tag as we called it. Uh, there's a case, a pretty strong case, that Avenue a actually invented that initial tracking technology. Of can you measure not just the click-through, but if somebody actually goes to the website, executes the purchase, they would put up a little tag on the thank you for buying page to tie back the conversion. So there's a little bit of debate in the industry about who invented it first, but it, whether it was either us or we were right there at the beginning. Um, you know, the tagline of Avenue a originally was Know What Works. Uh, So when you were up in Seattle in this
0: time frame, 99, 2000, it was when Amazon was viewed as, you know, one of the more exciting um, e-commerce startups, but nobody knew whether they were going to survive or not. And then Microsoft people thought that kind of Microsoft was, eh, it's not that exciting. So you've seen some big changes then I would guess over the last 20 years in Seattle.
1: Yeah. Just unbelievably massive changes. You know, the, you know, as I said, the avenue way got public and then the market crashed. Thankfully, we had raised a lot of capital, but we hadn't raised it so early that we had burned it all. <laughs> so, so we had a lot of capital and could really hunker down on the core part of that business that was the most valuable part and ultimately built that into a, you know, a real business that was large. I think, you know, we we had about a two and a half billion dollar market cap uh, leading into when consolidation started to happen in that space. So. Google. So
0: one follow-up follow that I'm curious about, because when you, t- when you think about COVID or you think about the financial crisis in 2008, uh, 2007, 2008, and then you think about what happened with Avenue A when this happened, how did you figure out at that time as a management team that, hey, we actually need to shepherd our resources? So we've just raised a huge amount of money in this IPO. And a lot of people look at these crisis periods and they're like, well, we should start to invest because it's going to be over in six months. And then there's also the point of view of, wow, this is going to be really deep, really severe. And we need to be really thoughtful about how we spend our money. So even if it means cutting heads, et cetera, like how did you make that decision in that timeframe? Because I don't think people
1: realized that the party was going to be over for years. Right. It's a great, great question. I mean, look, Avenue, within days of the market crashing in, in 2000, we started losing customers because a bunch of oh, our portfolio yeah. companies were VC-backed startups. You know, think about <laughs> like the stock, the stock. That's companies. the
0: definition of the
1: house of cards right there. Exactly. So a portion of our portfolio was. Now, a portion of our portfolio were big enterprise, like durable brands who actually had very rational economics in terms of selling online. And um, so we had a portfolio that included both of those. But what happened very quickly was we started losing a bunch of customers. And within, within weeks, it was clear that this was going to be very, very severe. And we also had some very experienced uh, senior exec managers, uh, notably our CEO, Brian McAndrews, uh, who had come from uh, traditional media and he, uh, along with the board and other senior execs led the, the charge around making some tough but necessary decisions which included pretty deep uh, cuts to staff, uh, which was heartbreaking as it always is. but um, it was a sort of you know cut, cut deep um, that you, you hear a lot about. I think that company we executed on that um, very, very well and we cut enough. And, and really quickly with that discussion like inside
0: the discussion, how much, you know, how torn were you about how deep that should be and how much leadership did the CEO have where he's, he's like, this is just what we have to do. Like, I want to take all this input, but really provided
1: that confidence and leadership of we have to. It was terrible. Um, And it was all about the key ingredient was leadership and making these tough decisions. Um, We thought we knew we had to cut deep and we thought we were cutting really deep. Um, the rough numbers were we had again, remember we had just gone public and scaled up and we had hired hundreds of people, you know, so we had something between four and call it 400 people. And we probably cut a third of the staff and thought we were cutting very deep. It turned out it wasn't deep enough and we ended up doing a second, uh, a second phase. So really, really painful. Um, and completely necessary because what that allowed us to do is not only conserve cash and extend runway, but it forced us to focus on what we most believed was the core of the business. You know, it's like the classic consulting thing that you know you learn in the main toolkit: like focus on your core. What are you most differentiated? Where are you most differentiated? Where can you most uh, build the most moat for long term? you know, competitive advantage, all these things that were sort of theoretical were now incredibly real. Um, and that's what we did. And, you know, we made a few bets in terms of product roadmap, you know, what were our engineers going to focus on? Um, a big part of that was we would commercialize our technology and go sell it to all the other agencies in the world, which is what became Atlas, uh, which was the division that I ended up running. Um, anyway, and uh, it was painful. It worked. We ended up hiring back. Uh, a number of the folks that we had unfortunately had to let go uh, because I think the the way the senior team executed was with, with grace and, and, and intact uh, and, and humility. And, and we were able to sort of preserve a lot of the goodwill with the folks that we had uh, and ultimately get a lot of them back. So it was a tremendous learning experience for me. Um, you know, then consolidation started to happen when the category took off and, you know, Google came in from dominating search and said, Hey, we want to also be in, in quote unquote display ads. It was Atlas and DoubleClick were the two companies that had scaled technology platforms to do that. You know, they took out DoubleClick uh, for 3 billion, which stunned everybody because they had been bought by private equity for about 1 billion, I think two years earlier. <laughs> uh and then there was a scramble uh for the last platform. And big companies, including Microsoft, wanted to be, you know, the other tech platform to Google. And, you know, that ended up generating a lot of value creation for for Quanta shareholders uh, in in terms of our exit.
0: So, Carl, we're going to have to take a short break here. When we come back, we're going to talk more about what led from where you are to where Flex is today. Stay with us. I'm Rob Cunivier, and this is Launchpad Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. Listening to Launchpad on Business Radio. Welcome back to Launchpad on SiriusXM's Business Radio. I'm Rob Conybear, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, and I'm joined today via Zoom by my guest, Carl Sebrick. He is the co founder and CEO of Flex, it's a Seattle logistics startup that operates an on demand warehouse marketplace. So before the break, we were talking about your career journey and how you ended up in Seattle. Would love to hear about your your path from being at Aquantive, going through the sale with Microsoft for over $6 billion to where you are today, uh, CEO of a fast-growing, really hot startup called Flex, uh, backed by Redpoint. How did you get from
1: where you were then to where you are now? Yeah, so after the sale to Microsoft, um, I took over as, as CEO of another ad tech company uh, here in Seattle called AdReady, uh, had also just raised their Series B. Um, I was CEO of that company for a little over three years. We ended up selling that business uh, in 2012, 2013. Uh, and by that point, I had been in ad tech for about 13, uh, 14 years. Uh, it had been a great run, but the uh, you know the industry was consolidating uh, massively or had consolidated massively um, you know it's not to say that innovation was all done but a lot of the uh, core innovation had already happened and it was becoming a little bit more incremental at that point so anyway I had a, t- I had a chance to take a step back um, think about what I want to do next which was definitely uh, another early stage company either start one or join one um, in b2b which is what I knew uh, tech, obviously, and not ad tech. It was sort of like, you know. I started- <laughs> Swore ad- off ad tech forever. Yeah, I'd like, I'd like something new. So as I was incubating a few different ideas with, with friends and other local entrepreneurs, the idea for Flex quite literally just came out of the blue uh, to me and my co-founders. And this was a, uh, it came from a local entrepreneur here in Seattle, a guy called Dhruv Agarwal who uh, had started a business uh, selling home barware, so martini glasses and coasters and wine bottle openers and all the, all the tchotchkes. And he was probably eight or nine years into this business. It was called True Fabrications, which I think is still funny. Uh, and did he
0: sell all over the country or all over the did. world? He yep. We-
1: his okay. model was, uh, all of his product was, was, was manufactured in Asia. It would come through the port of Seattle. He had one warehouse south of Seattle in Kent, which is where all the warehouses around Seattle kind of are. Um, and he would distribute nationally to gift stores, wine shops. Uh, and then, of course, he had a website. Um, but he had one warehouse south of Seattle and he was distributing nationally. And he, like I said, he was eight or nine years into this business, You know, uh, never raised any capital. He and his co-founders just financed the whole thing. And it was doing quite so This well. is literally like a big warehouse that he leased from
0: somebody else. That's and right. and then he would have people that were in there that would box and ship things wherever they needed to go in the country. Exactly right.
1: And it since the inception of their company, he was on his third warehouse, right? Because they each came with a two to three year lease, as they typically do. Uh, and his business kept growing. So he'd grow out of his first lease and he'd, he'd get a bigger building the second time if he kept growing and uh he i met him at a, at a housewarming party uh and he said hey you're a tech guy right he's like i got an idea for you this is literally i'm not making this up this is literally his phrase like i got an idea for you you're a tech guy he says listen to this <laughs> and, and of course you know I'm, I'm rolling my eyes and you know not out because you it.
0: hear it like you know once a once a month at a cocktail party somebody's like you're a tech guy you got all the answers
1: i got an idea for you I'm like great it turns out as an amazing idea because here's how he described it. He said, look, my business is growing quite rapidly. But to be honest, I don't know if I'm going to grow 50% this year or 500%. Like I'm either going to win the Whole Foods con- distribution contract, you know, or not. Or I'm either going to expect, it's like, I have no idea. Uh, and I'm seasonal. You know, I, I sell a lot of products for holiday season. My warehouse is, I think it was like, 40,000 square feet at the time. He's like, look, I, I'm on my third warehouse. Every time I, I sign a lease, I'm wrong. I'm either- <laughs> it's either too big or too small. Yeah. Hopefully and too it, small, either, but it's still a always, problem. I'm either long or short on space. And he said, you know what? All of my entrepreneur buddies who have other products, you know, and, and, and like have businesses and other product, everybody's in the same boat. Everybody's always either long or short. But we have to sign up for this long-term fixed cost obligation in our warehouse. He says, last Q4, I did a handshake deal with a buddy where I was short on space. He had extra space. And so I routed some of my inventory through his warehouse. He said, in concept, you know, I could pay him extra money against his fixed cost of his lease. In concept, it was great. He said operationally, it was, it was terrible. Like I didn't have any visibility to my inventory. He didn't know how to handle my stuff. He's like, couldn't you build a software system that we could both of us use so that we could effectively share capacity and smooth out um, all these sort of unders and overs in the market? And this resonated with me so deeply because I spent 14 years in ad tech building two-sided marketplace businesses where the two sides were connected by a software platform. Where were you guys when you had this chit chat? Where were you guys? We were at a housewarming, it was a condo uh, warming party in Capitol Hill. So you're basically
0: having some cocktails. And then how long was this conversation? Were you basically ignoring everybody around you? You know, it ended up being a two-hour conversation.
1: Yeah, it it ended up being more like a half-hour initial conversation with a, you know, let's exchange information. Yeah. The other thing that was sort of lucky happenstance was there were two other folks at the same Party, and we were all connected by this, this other entrepreneur called Aaron Goldfeder, uh, who I uh, was on the board at his company called Energy Savvy for a bunch of years. So he knew this guy Dhruv and all the other guests, it was actually his condo. So it th- turns out these other two guys who were there ended up being my co-founders. They, had, uh, had, they were engineers, they had been at Microsoft, and then had left and d- done a uh, startup together at uh, YC, at Y Combinator in the Bay Area and had just sold it and they were thinking about what to do next and so here we all are at this party we meet this guy who has this idea and i think the party was in july we immediately left there and started our diligence you know the things i heard when i went out to sort of like get a sense of is this a big problem is this a nice opportunity was you know the logistics industry Is a a trillion and a half dollars it's eight percent of gdp you know everybody checks
0: the box of enormous market ridiculously big market it
1: it turns out this problem of warehouses being fixed when businesses are increasingly dynamic uh, particularly with the rise of e-commerce and the push to deliver stuff ever faster which means your warehouse network needs to grow and expand uh is a big deal so it literally took a couple weeks of diligence before i dropped the other two ideas I was incubating, we went back to Dhruv and said, hey, if we built this, would you would you actually use it? We incorporated in August and we were generating revenue on October 1st.
0: If you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Connevier. you're listening to Launchpad on SiriusXM 132 Business Radio. And I am on Zoom right now with Carl Siebrecht, who is the co-founder and CEO of Flex, a Seattle-based startup. So when you talk about what you're doing, I think you've, I've heard or I've, I've read that you talk about yourself as the Amazon Web Services of warehousing. And at the same time, Amazon Web Services, Amazon I think runs all the servers, runs all the pieces and then they sell stuff out. But I think what you were talking about is it's more of a marketplace. So does it mean that somebody controls the lease and then the person that controls the lease can basically lay off part of their market or part of their warehouse operation?
1: Or how does that work? Yeah. So the, the, the reason why I feel like the AWS is a good metaphor for our business. If you think about the world before cloud, which these days is almost impossible to do, but it was only about 15 years ago when AWS was created, uh, a business would need a data center to house their storage and bandwidth effectively, like their IT capacity. And they could either do that first party, they could lease space, buy servers, buy a backup power generator, racking, hire employees to manage those servers. So they could first party it, or they could outsource it to a third party. Uh, Rackspace was one of the early providers, there's a bunch of them, right? And if you outsourced it, um, you would do that on a multi-year, basically fixed obligation type of contract because that that outsourced service provider would have to put in fixed capital for the rent, for the power, for the actual boxes, right? And if you think about that, that's exactly the way warehousing has worked from the inception of the industry. Again, it's the the economic construct is a long-term lease and therein lies one of the constraints to growth and flexibility. So when AWS launched, the new model was, hey, just plug in once to our software technology platform, and it's pure variable cost. We have bandwidth that basically will never end. So uh, when you launch as a business, you know, your website in this case, you know, you think you're going to have X amount of traffic and it's double X, no problem. You just dialed up. and, and- So from a customer facing point of view,
0: that's absolutely correct, right? So you look at that. What I'm what I'm trying to understand a bit is how it works on the supply side, because it would almost be like if Amazon, instead of having their own servers and all those pieces, would they were actually connecting you to servers all over the world that they didn't control or
1: spin up. Correct, and and so on the supply side, the reason our business can exist and thrive so well is I, when I. Yeah, go back to Dhruv and the cocktail party. He's like, look, everybody is either long or short. So all of those warehouses that are long, i.e. I rented 300,000 square feet on a three-year term, even though I was only going to use 100,000 in the first year, means there's latent capacity. So we are able to tap into that latent physical capacity, like space and racking,
0: um yeah and, and maybe maybe that,
1: put differently what i'm what i'm trying to understand
0: is how do you ensure that you have the quality of the warehouse experience yeah. so that people don't worry about stuff getting burned down or stolen or maybe the things that can go wrong in a warehouse yep. do you have some sort of auditing process et cetera, or do you have some requirements for when the supply comes onto your platform
1: we do there's you know filtering and and uh you know, assessing of, of new potential partners. But the real crux of the answer is the common software platform. Every one of these operators uses the flex, it's called WMS, warehouse management software. You use the same software tools all the way down to the scanning device that the, you know, warehouse worker uses. Um, the UPS or FedEx shipping label is connected via APIs to Flex. So it prints out on the floor of the warehouse. So we can drive standardization, which is the necessary ingredient to quality, um, in large part through consistent software. So the customer experience is as, as back on the AWS metaphor, I can plug in once. In this case, it's you can plug your shopping cart into Flex or if you're a big company like a Walmart, you, know, you can plug your, your ERP feed Uh, order feed through an EDI connection into Flex, but you plug it in once and now you can warehouse uh, and and do fulfillment e-commerce pick and pack anywhere across the country on a purely variable cost basis. And the way that is operationalized is the the supply side, if you will, of the Flex tech stack is this WMS. It's cloud-based, they're scanning devices. um, And the more and more people adopt it, the more and more lock-in you have, the
0: more and more the network is worth overall. One curiosity I have is, do you actually operate warehouses at all? So because you have all this information and you have an idea of where demand is, where demand's likely to be, where there might be a hole, et cetera, do you do that or is it purely
1: peer-to-peer? We do not. It's, peer, it's peer-to-peer. And you know, on our journey, we have considered like, hey, should we... Um, should we do our own lease and operate one or more of these nodes? Um, The problem with that is we would then be a biased participant in the marketplace. And it's very important for us to to maintain um, neutrality in that marketplace so that all of the different, they're called 3PLs or third-party logistics companies, uh, are very excited to work with us and feel like, you know, we don't have our thumb on the scale of of trying to get all the best customers.
0: I see. And then that's how you get more and more scale. So as you get bigger and bigger and bigger, they want to come in or they actually need to be a part of the platform to get the best pricing or the fairest pricing or the volume they want. That's right. That's really exciting. So how did you connect with Redpoint?
1: Yeah, so um, we've generally had a very a strong mindset towards capital efficiency since we founded the business. And I think, or I know, I should say, a big part of that was driven by my experience at Avenue A. Uh, and we talked about the, the bubble and the burst and the, the ups and the downs. And so I had lived through, and frankly, when I was CEO of AdReady, the next company, uh, that was uh, right after the second crisis. So I had seen two of these And you just know that no matter how smart you are, no matter how good your strategy is, no matter how great your team is, like stuff can happen that's beyond your control. And so it was very important for me at the onset of of building this company to be, um, uh, to to basically be very methodical to understand, do we have product market fit? Do we have unit economics that makes sense? Um, And uh, anyway, so that has translated into, hey, let's be, um, let's be very capital efficient. We raised a seed, a seed round that actually took us three years um, from the inception of the company when we self-funded to our seed round. So we raised uh, our Series A three years in, which was 2016. Um, and I met Ryan from, from uh, Redpoint as part of a broader effort to go out and, and uh, consider lots of different uh, venture capital uh, potential partners. And I did have a connection with Redpoint. It turns out it was another undergrad uh, friend, uh, Scott Rainey, who had been there for many, many years. Um, so that helped uh, from a relationship standpoint uh, because I knew Scott and trust him. Uh, yeah, and for and-
0: people that aren't familiar with Redpoint, it's a leading venture capital firm based down in the Bay Area.
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, it turned out that um, Redpoint uh, shared the vision that we had put forth with, you know, Look, it's inevitable that logistics and fulfillment will be a technology-driven business going forward. Amazon has already proven this by uh, taking basically a tech-first approach, now backed by tens of billions of dollars of capital. Um, But what you have to understand is that for decades and decades, the logistics industry has been a people and an asset business like the value drivers are, you know, can I manage space, you know, assets and people, labor assets. And, if, and then I can use some elements of technology to help me be a little more efficient going forward. And what Amazon has built is a technology driven business that is supported by assets. And those are fundamentally different things. And so,
0: yeah, the way you think about things, the way you set it up, where you invest, exactly what you make, yeah, better and better. So, You're in Seattle and you'd been there at this point for quite a while. Once this July, August, October timeframe came up where you went from the idea to actually starting the business. How did you go about finding investors? Did you look around Seattle for a while or did you immediately call your undergraduate buddy, Scott, and say, hey, uh, we'd love to come down and show you the pitch for what we're up to with Flex. It's working. We'd like to grow. How, How did that work out?
1: Yep. So when we, when it was time to raise our seed round, um, I have pretty good and deep connections in the Seattle uh, tech community um, from my past. And so I knew a lot of the lead, actually most of the leading kind of early stage investors in Seattle, uh, pretty much all of them. Uh, And there's a bunch of smart folks and people I like quite a bit. And so that was um, clearly part of the approach was to find those who were most excited about what we were doing. Um, but we also very explicitly wanted to tap into um, investors and relationship in the Bay Area, just knowing that, um, you know, whatever the ratio is, if 5x or 10x, the amount of capital or maybe more, we wanted to be able to tap into that network early. And so uh, the entity that actually led our seed uh, was a guy I had met originally at Microsoft who was in the corp dev group there uh, called Fritz Lambin. And he was, uh, had been a very successful uh, angel investor um, and had uh, a cohort of relationships and folks from the Bay Area. So we tapped into uh, Fritz and Hank Vigil's, uh fund called a or Acecap, cap. Uh, and they were a key part of our seed round. So we had kind of the best of both worlds, folks from Seattle who we knew and, and folks who were really plugged into the Bay Area community. And that proved to be super valuable as we then went on to our series A and beyond. Yeah.
0: Well, one thing's for sure. You have your friends at Redpoint, but I'm sure you talk to other firms and the best way to get a good valuation is to have alternatives.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It's just like anything else. I learned that in Econ 101. <laughs> how would that work?
0: So, you get in the plane, you fly down to the Bay Area, and then how many meetings would you stack up when you were down there and fundraising?
1: A lot. Um, you know, <laughs> you know uh, in, uh, on the one hand, it can be more difficult coming down from Seattle. It's not that far of a trip, but coming in from Seattle to try and raise capital in the Bay Area, you know, when you're not there on the ground and you get to have drinks with people and nurture relationships over months. On the other hand, it can be really useful because you can kind of time constrain everything and be very almost like project minded. So, which is literally what we did is we said, look, once we're ready to go, we're going to reach out to folks and say, look, I'm going to be in the Bay area for two weeks. Um, week one, week two, you know, if you're interested, happy to meet, you know, like let's get on the calendar. And I did, I don't know, it was very intense, but it was a short burst rather than something that could kind of go on for weeks and months. Um, And that proved to be very, very effective as, you know, you pretty quickly get to people who are really leaning in uh, versus those who, you know, what we're doing is just not a great fit for what they're interested in. Um, And you could run in that way, a really pretty efficient process, which we did for our series A, and then did again for our series B.
0: Well, one thing that's clear from our conversation is it sounds like you were very, very thoughtful, whether it's from the Bain background or your operating background since then, about focusing on the unit economics and proving that the actual business model works. So the vision's really interesting. And you had the vision, you got excited, you could see there was the opportunity. But before you went to raise the real money beyond the seed money, you wanted to focus on proving out as much as you could of the economic model, because then when you meet with people, they're like, yeah, I see the vision, but is it working? You can show that. That certainly moves a fundraising
1: process along when you can show that. That's, that's absolutely right. And kind of the you know, short back of the napkin kind of way I think about it is, look, when you're raising seed capital, it's probably 90% vision, 10% metrics. When you're raising A capital, it's probably 60% vision, 40% metrics, and it, it varies by enterprise versus consumer, right? You know this better than I do. You know, you get to be, so that ratio tends to sort of shift towards more metrics, you know, uh, less vision, but um, both are important.
0: Yeah, so we've got about 10 minutes here, about 8 to 10 minutes here, and would love to hear, just spend a minute or two, where is Flex today? And then I'd love to talk about where do you see the Seattle region going?
1: Yeah. So Flex today is, um, the business is doing great. Like it's been doing great really since uh, inception. We've been growing very rapidly. Um, we work now with, a, with more than a handful of uh, Fortune 1000, even up to Fortune 50 companies. Uh, and going back to that kind of cloud metaphor, you know, uh, startups basically exclusively use cloud these days, right? Because why would you ever invest in a fixed term data center with all the uncertainty and have to build stuff and manage stuff yourself, but enterprises uh, now far more often than not have at least a hybrid data center cloud model. And this is exactly what's happening in logistics is startups. It's a no brainer to plug into us. And then you're, you're, there is no constraint on your growth in terms of will I have enough warehouse capacity to handle my surge in sales or whatever that might be. But then also for enterprises, um, you plug into Flex once and now you have this flexible, agile complement to handle things that you expect to happen like seasonal Q4 peak, but also importantly to handle things that you don't expect are gonna happen. Like, oh wow, we just had a Q4 peak in Q2 uh, because of COVID. Right. Right. I can handle that now. No problem. Very quickly, uh, uh, particularly in a time when other businesses can't, um, you can gain very significant market share by being, you know, being there with a better delivery promise. Uh, And then for things like just extending your physical warehouse network so that you can put inventory closer to where people live. That is the key ingredient, the sort of laws of physics dictate that if you want fast delivery, you've got to have inventory pretty close by. And again, going back to the, the fact that, that traditionally you'd have to lease a warehouse uh, every time you add a node through this model, it's pure variable cost. And so, you know, to just to, to, to bring it to life a little bit, if you want, if you're selling, if you're a brand in the US selling across the country, and you want two-day delivery uh, for your online sales, you need between two and three warehouses to support you know, getting 90% of your orders there in two days. If you want one-day delivery, which, by the way, is now the new bar that Amazon has just set, you need between like 12 and 16 warehouses to get one-day delivery. If you want same-day delivery, you know, you're up in the many dozens if every one of those warehouses has to be a long-term multi-year fixed lease and everyone has to have a new instance of technology set up, it just, it doesn't work. It can't work. And frankly, it never will work. So...
0: Yeah, well, you can start to see where your software roadmap is probably going to. So how you can start to guarantee these different things and different service exactly. level agreements for people when they come and they plug into the,
1: yeah.
0: the platform. One thing that's interesting is there's very much a cloud... Uh, mentality in Seattle. You take a look at the two leading cloud providers, uh, obviously Amazon and and Microsoft. They've actually done better than Google in this regard in the Bay Area. And then you have yourself with the warehousing building this cloud concept, but then you have a company like Convoy that's doing something similar, but it's for shipping the actual movement of goods around. Do you think this is an area that is a long-term advantage for Seattle, Seattle entrepreneurs, and similar types of opportunities?
1: Possibly. Uh, you know, it's, I, I paused, obviously. It's, it's, hard to, it's hard to know, frankly. I mean, it is, as you say, it's kind of stunning to, when you have to realize that between Amazon and Microsoft, you've got, you know, the epicenter of probably one of the most important technology advances in the last, you know, since the internet. Uh, all within 10 miles of each other, you know, does that create specific benefit for startups that are physically located here more than the Bay area? I, you know, I don't know. Um, there's certainly uh, uh, an increasing, there's been, been no shortage and, and now there's an increasing um, population of great tech talent here. Uh, and by the way, it's not just Amazon and Microsoft, but because of Amazon and Microsoft being here, You know, Google and Facebook and Twitter and everybody else has opened up dev uh, uh, offices here. And in the near term, that could be challenging because they're sort of competing for more of the talent. Um, But over the midterm, I would say starting, you know, probably even a year or two ago, a lot of that talent that's been attracted to the city, you know, much of it's ready to move on to their next thing. Uh, And so startups like Flex.
0: And you must be seeing that, too, because you're recruiting. You must love seeing the people out of Google or Facebook or other places that are well-trained that you can plug into your development ecosystem. Right. There's
1: just a lot of talent here. Now, uh, there's also, it's expensive, because uh, there's a lot of people competing for that talent, but you know, uh, there is a ton of talent here and, and we're certainly tapping into it um,
0: liberally. So we've got a couple of minutes here before we need to wrap up. Looking forward for the Seattle region, you've been here for a while at this point. Uh, over 20 years, where do you
1: think it's headed? You know, I, I've, I still remain surprised at how under-indexed venture capital is in this market. I can't, you know, and I know, I've read a lot of things and people write about it and you would think that somebody will, would have been able to do the analysis and figured out why it is the case. You know, when there is so much talent, there is, so, particularly early stage, you know, there's a lot of wealth that's been created in, in the Seattle area, and so there's a lot of capacity to invest, and yet it is still um, so small and under-indexed relative, certainly to the Bay Area, and why that is, it's just a, it's a mystery. That said, um, there is lots of activity. There are a lot of great investors up here, and um, it's, it's far from zero. Um, but that, that remains one of the big mysteries to me. Do you think it's held it back? Is that part of the reason that it's on your mind? A little bit, yeah. And, and I go back to what I was describing with Flex. You know, Part of our very explicit strategy when we raised our C was to go outside of Seattle. And it was exactly for that reason. There's a lot of great early stage investors in Seattle. But when you start getting to uh, larger funds that write bigger checks, there are a couple. But there aren't that many. And so you just want to be tapped into that other market um, so you have more optionality. Yeah. So, Carl, thanks a lot for joining me today. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Appreciate it, Rob. And for people that want to keep up with you, where should they go and to follow Flex? You can follow us on LinkedIn and then just our, uh, our website, is, it's FLEXE.com.
0: For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.com dot